Today I'm reading a story from Luke 19 that's a familiar story to many of us, and for me there's something lovely and comforting in gathering familiar things about me in these uncertain times. It's the story read today on Palm Sunday, with people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, when they see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. Maybe you can use your imagination, imagining you're a person in the crowd, watching this amazing spectacle, maybe even a palm branch waving. As he, Jesus, rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In 1962, there was a 12-year-old boy who began memorizing Bible verses at the bequest of the church that he attended, and many of us have had that same experience. I had that same experience. Growing up in my church, uh, my Sunday school teacher would assign a memory verse to us each week, and there would be a star placed by your name uh, if you memorized the verse for the week. And if you were really sharp, you could gather a whole bunch of stars. Did you memorize the Bible verse? Yes, get a star. Did you study the Sunday school lesson? Yes, get a star. Did you read your Bible every day? Yes, get a star. Did you bring an offering today? Yes, get a star. Did you bring a friend today? Yes, get a star. So you know those things go. Well, this young man, 12 years old, Charles Matlock, had an entire constellation of stars by his name, apparently. With the gift of near total recall and his vocation as a traveling evangelist over the decades, Matlock became known as the Walking Bible of West Tennessee. Savannah, Tennessee is where he lived. Cite a Bible verse, and Matlock would close his eyes for a moment, reach into his photographic memory, and most times be able to access the text being asked for. He had nearly 50 50 of the books of the Bible memorized word for word. And that is extraordinary. There are 66 books in the combined Hebrew and Christian scriptures, 40 plus authors composed and collected over 1500 years, multiple languages. And when this massive library of spiritual and cultural revelation was finally divided into chapter and verse for English readers in 1560, we ended up with 1,189 chapters, 31,173 individual verses, and three quarters of a million words. And Charles Matlock 
with his remarkable mind, could recall 75% of that material. He's like Denzel Washington in the, in the movie Book of Eli. And I'll spoil it for you. Eli Denzel is a weary traveler making his way through the post-nuclear war world sometime in the apocalyptic future. He carries with him a book. It is the Bible. It is the last Bible on the face of the planet. All the bad guys want this book. To stop being bad and get right with God? Of course not. But they do what bad, powerful, corrupt people always do. They want this book to use it against the weak and the ignorant and to consolidate their grip on others. Well, the bad guy gets Eli's Bible, but they can't read it because it's in Braille. Eli has been blind this entire time, and he has been carrying the Bible in his memory, the entire thing, and ultimately dictates all 31,173 verses to those who will print it and reproduce it. It's a fantastic film, Sands the Violence, but it is worthy of a quarantine download and to watch it maybe even this afternoon, the book of Eli. None of us have Eli or Matlock's abilities, no one that I know. So our recall of Bible verses is quite limited. Right now, pause and think, in fact, of the few verses maybe that you have memorized over the years. And if these cameras, and I don't know which camera I'm on right now, if these cameras could be turned around and aimed at you, and we asked you for a memory verse, could you call up one? Could you call up two? Could you call up a half a dozen? John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Luke 6, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I wonder, how many verses could you actually recite? I know one you can all memorize. No matter how frail your mental capacities might be, you know it. You know the verse in question. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words from John. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. That was the go-to verse in Sunday school class. If you arrived and you did not have your memory verse memorized, you could always say, Jesus wept. There's one, and you get a star by your name. It's a beautiful verse, really, not just a memory verse cop-out. Jesus wept. The Lord of creation, God over the universe, divine being in the flesh, crying and weeping. Why? Well, in John 11, he was standing at the grave of his dear friend, Lazarus, when that moment was captured by John. Facing death, facing his own death in days to come, seeing the unbelief of those who had followed him for so long but still didn't understand who he really was, and it brought him to tears. But it's not the only place in the scriptures, those 31,000 plus verses where Jesus cried. There's one more place, and you heard it read today by Anna. If we were together today, physically, not just virtually, we would reenact much of this reading, this traditional lesson for Palm Sunday. Why is it called Palm Sunday? Well, exactly one week before Easter, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the city that would conspire against him and take his life. And he does so as a welcomed prophet, a king, 
The people spread their garments on the ground before him. They took their outer coats, their cloaks, and laid them down on the ground. It was an act of honor, an act of submission. They were literally taking the shirts off their backs as a way of showing fidelity to this newly arriving king. And in the other gospel accounts, particularly Matthew, the people spontaneously cut down palm branches and wave them wildly as Jesus passes by. And in that day, this was a common act of celebration. It's the big foam number one finger at a football game. The totem that's raised at any celebration. It's a joyful, high-spirited parade going on here with all sorts of messianic and royal and political overtones. The Pharisees recognize it as much, instantly. The king, arriving in the name of the Lord, glory to God in the highest, Hosanna. No, no, no. This is all wrong. This is dangerous. This is blasphemy. This is going to get out of hand. So they say to Jesus in Luke 19.39, Teacher, Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. you got to stop this right now. Well, I thought of the Pharisees this last week right here in my own neighborhood. <laughs> we live in Hammock Bay here in the great city of Freeport. It's a beautiful neighborhood, actually, and it's massive. 3,000 acres. That's six times the size of watercolor, and it's an even bigger footprint than, say, Sandestin for a point of reference. Uh, and all these different neighborhoods sprawl out all over the place. And when we moved here seven years ago, there were 800 people living on the entire 3,000 acres. And now there's more than 5,000. So social distance, distancing is getting a little harder to do around here. But that's a talk for another day. Anyway, with businesses shut down and schools closed, a group of my neighbors organized a Friday parade a couple weeks ago. Five o'clock Friday parade. Streamers, balloons, everyone stays in their own cars, quarantines are maintained, honk your horn, meet at the designated gather spot, and we'll have a good time and parade through all these different neighborhoods all over Hammock Bay and try to encourage the kids and the families who are stuck at home. Well, the day after that notice went out, I received in my inbox exactly 26 individual emails from the HOA management team. And word had gotten to them that an unauthorized, unpermitted, red tape ignoring parade was about to take place. And oh, no, it's not, they said. We forbid it, and you're going to have to go to the city and make proper arrangements. Well, do you know what happens when you tell a group of largely Freeport rednecks that they can't do something that is fairly safe and uplifting and causes no harm to someone? Yeah, they do it even harder. And so this once-a-week Friday parade has turned into a daily Friday parade, and I think largely out of spite toward the HOA. And it's not just cars anymore. Yesterday's edition was, was quite interesting. They've added motorcycles and RVs and a couple retired military vehicles, and someone in this parade plays reveille over a loudspeaker into every neighborhood, and it goes on for 45 minutes every day. I kid you not. So here are these Pharisees, and they're standing there sort of like an HOA with their clipboards in hand showing Jesus that he does not have the proper permits for a parade or a demonstration, cease and desist immediately under penalty of law. And how does Jesus answer? He goes harder. Verse 40, he says, If they keep quiet... 
the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Only after standing on the Mount of Olives, in this very place these events transpired, did I come to understand what Jesus truly meant that day. When he spoke about the stones, the rocks crying out, we've always taken it to mean that the regular old rocks would start singing, the gravel and the pebbles alternating between melody and harmony, but that's not what it means at all. As you walk down the winding road, from the apex of the Mount of Olives, down that lower slope, into the Kidron Valley, out of that valley and in toward the eastern gate, where the temple of Jerusalem was. And if you walk that path even today, you are walking through a massive graveyard. It's the largest graveyard I've ever seen outside of Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. Christians are buried there. Muslims are buried there. And of course, the burial of Jews makes up the largest section. There are 150,000 graves on that single mountainside, and those are just the graves. Because in that culture, unlike ours, graves are recycled. The body is put in the grave until there is nothing but bones, and then the bones are gathered and taken and put somewhere else. Millions, likely, have been buried on that mountainside. And it has been a burial ground for 3,000 years. When Jesus was walking down the Mount of Olives, He was walking through the same graveyards that you or I could walk down and through today on the Mount of Olives. And so what Jesus is saying is nothing about arbitrary stones singing a worship chorus. He is saying, if these people now don't tell the truth, your very ancestors will. History will prove the truth of what I am saying to you. These dead bones will rise and you will know the truth of all that you've witnessed today. Now, I would like to dwell on that. I'm not going to. Join me Wednesday evening at 6.30 and I think I'll pick up right there and talk a little more about what that part of the story means. But today, I I want you not to miss this. This joyous Palm Sunday, Hallelujah, Hosanna parade goes right through a graveyard. A graveyard. And in that graveyard, Jesus stops to do what should be done in a graveyard. He weeps. He mourns. He laments all that is lost, all that is misunderstood, all the suffering, even as those around Him shout praises. Repeating verses 41 through 44. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground, your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you in 40 years. 40 years. A generation after Jesus spoke these words. This all became true.
There's a church on the side of the Mount of Olives called Dominus Flavit. It is the traditional site where Jesus stopped to weep over the city of Jerusalem. There's been a church or a monastery there since the third century. And in the 1950s, when the Franciscans began building the current structure, they excavated graves dating back to hundreds of years before Jesus. So Jesus literally stopped in the graveyard and Dominus Flevit. It means the Lord cried. Out the sanctuary windows today, you can see the city of Jerusalem. And the dome of the church itself is shaped like a tear. Dominus Flavit, the Lord cried, Jesus wept on Palm Sunday. Why? Because he knew what was to come. Not for himself, but for the people whom he loved. They were on the wrong path. Ignorance and arrogance would destroy them. You didn't have to be a prophet to see where it was all headed He knew that the graveyard in which he stood would only expand. And it drove him to tears. For anyone with a beating heart, with even the slightest bit of empathy, sympathy, and compassion, how could it not? How could you not see the coming tidal wave of suffering, a virtual tsunami of heartache and pain, and not be moved by it? What an incredibly apt reading for this Palm Sunday in the year of our Lord, 2020. Our celebrations continue. They're unorthodox, they're muted. But at the same time, like no other Palm Sunday in the world's collective memory, this Holy Week must begin with lament. I sat in this room a week ago and said, As of this morning, there are nearly 125,000 cases of coronavirus in the U.S. and almost 700,000 in the world. And this morning, there are 315,000 cases in the United States. And there are more than 1.2 million cases in the world. Empathy, sympathy, compassion brings us to stillness, to the quiet of a graveyard, to tears. And not for a minute should we seek to avoid it. Because that's what we always do in this country. In this world that we have created. We don't want to stop, sit still, and take in the ugliness, the loss. We don't want to weep. We can't weep. We have activity and drink and pharmaceuticals and medicines and food and drugs and alcohol and work and sex and busyness. These are not necessarily the things we enjoy. These are the things we use to distract and to numb us. We don't want to look into the dark, look into ourselves, face the destruction that we have all played a role in. But what else can we do? When so many of the things we have relied upon to keep us from facing reality are now taken away from us. When the security of our investments is taken away. When maintaining our health is no longer a guarantee. When there is no war to win. No visible enemy to conquer. When there is no place to where we can escape. 
when there is no certainty about the future, when our therapeutic culture can no longer provide the anesthetic that we need from it, when we know the grieving place where we stand has not yet ceased to expand. We have to stop and lament. We must, even if the parade moves along without us. The gift of this Holy Week is not the shout of Hosanna or the waving of palm branches, not this year. The gift, and you might be resisting this, this gift with all that you have, but the gift is to pause. It is stillness. It is stopping and looking at the world, stopping and looking at your world, stopping and looking within. The gift is the gift of grief. We grieve over those whose lives are lost. We grieve that the, that the divisions in our country, which have largely been political and ideological, are now leading us toward more death. We grieve that selfishness, incompetence, and arrogance stand in the way of our unity and our healing. We grieve that the poor and working people, those who are truly essential, will suffer the most. Those who were once unseen, our grocery clerks, our sanitation workers, our nursing aides, our lives rest in their hands, not the hands of bankers and CEOs and politicians. We lament that we, all of us, have had a hand in building these systems so frail and so rife with injustice. We lament for those who, even while doing the best they can, it won't be enough in the weeks to come. We lament that we risk learning nothing and changing nothing long after the fever breaks and the virus passes if we don't experience a genuine repentance. For we will still have a sickness of the soul if we do not have a change of heart and then rise from our tears and leave the graveyard and proceed toward the ever-giving, ever-sacrificing way of the cross. Our tears can lead us to peace, to a whole new way of seeing and living in the world if we will allow the stillness and the grief and the heartache to teach us and to transform us. Only then can our tears lead us in the direction of resurrection. I hope you will join me this morning in a responsive reading. It may seem strange to respond with words sitting in front of a laptop screen or an iPad alone or maybe with only one or two other people. But it's no stranger than it is to me to speak to a group that I can't see and don't know if you're really there. But we can do this together. A Palm Sunday lament offered as our prayer of benediction and our dedicate prayer of dedication. Your response is simple. May our tears Lead us to peace. Lord Jesus, as you entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, you stopped to weep for those who had lost their way. May our tears lead us to peace. You wept for those too blind to see, too arrogant to change, too selfish to see their own destruction. May our tears lead us to peace. You wept for those who could not recognize that God had come to visit them. 
may our tears lead us to peace. And today we weep with you. We weep for ourselves, for how we have lost our own way, for our selfishness, for our failure to turn from our own self-destruction. May our tears lead us to peace. In these days of stillness and quiet, turn our eyes inward. Search us and know us that we might know ourselves. And with change of heart and spirit, turn us to you and to reconstruct the world, a world that can better understand the way to peace. May our tears lead us to peace. May our tears lead us to peace.